Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. I'm really excited about having our guest here, Sonali de Riker. She's had an amazing uh, story, which she's going to share with us today. Uh, she started off uh, in uh, Bryn Mawr College, uh, went to uh, Goldman, ended up getting an MBA from Harvard, and is now a partner at Excel. But within that lies a lot of great anecdotes about culture, about the right teams, about managing expectations, and about entrepreneurship. So thanks for joining us, Nali. It's great to be here, Carlos. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So let's start off with with how you ended up at Bryn Mawr. You were sharing with me before we started recording how that was an amazing experience for you in, in sort of shaping the perseverance that you, you have today. So, yeah, it's, um, I feel that sort of the ages of 16 to 25 really define you. And um, at least they define me. And, you know, I sometimes think it's impossible to sort of understand how people are if you don't understand what brought them there. So my story, which is, you know, not that... Uh, unique coming from India was I grew up in India in the 70s and India today is sort of you know one of the biggest market and everybody is going back and people are investing when I grew up you had two channels one brand of toothpaste one brand of soap uh, the same TV advertisements you saw for the last 10 years and essentially if you weren't born to a very rich sort of industrialist family which I was not or if you were not a doctor which I was not ever going to be and if you want a chartered accountant, don't ask me why, you were gonna be trouble. And I really didn't wanna be a chartered accountant, which seemed like the only feasible way. So I thought, okay, at about 15, I thought, how do I get out of here? How do I sort of find a way where I'm not defined by these three things? And I said, okay, I know what, I'll go to America. I'd never been to America, I didn't have money to go to America. Uh, so I set about researching what does it mean to go to America, found myself in the USIS, which I think stands for US Information Services, physical library where I sat there every day after school and I pulled down books and started reading about these colleges and like, you know, of course everyone knows Harvard and Stanford and Yale. And the problem I had was not just applying, but the fact that I didn't even have money for the application form. And anyway, so kind of a year and a half later, I did all the testing. I figured out how to do that myself. I begged, borrowed, used all the present money I'd ever got in my life from my uncles in the US to uh, to sort of subsidize myself. And I thought, look, let's just do this properly. If you're gonna do it, do it properly, which is what I tell my kids all the time and they don't listen to me. But anyway, I applied to 37 colleges and my one ask was, I really need a full ride, like you need to pay for every single thing. Um, I waited and waited and waited and uh, I got into quite a few colleges luckily, but I only got one option of a full scholarship. and. Um, I begged, borrowed, I stealed, and that was Bryn Mawr College, and I went there, and it redefined my entire life and experience, and um, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to these schools where they take kids from other countries and they subsidize them, not knowing anything about them. So that's how I got there. That's a very great and inspiring story. And you went up to Goldman, from what I understand, after a liberal arts degree, so how did, that, how did you make that transition? So it's, uh, so I think, you know, I, I look a lot uh, for hustle, we all do, in the entrepreneurs we back, because it's the hustle that makes people something that they never could be in the circumstances in which they find themselves. And so I guess that's something that did define me, as I just described in the, in the, in the college uh, search. 
but also in the jobs. So Bryn Mawr is a beautiful campus, very small, very sleepy, um, very intellectual, very academic. So kind of 70% of the uh, uh, students at the time go on to PhDs or kind of medicine. Getting a commercial job is sort of, you know, not, it wasn't frowned upon, but they hadn't been set up for it. And going to Wall Street, my God, I mean, you can count the number of people who had ever gone to Wall Street in the entire history of Bryn Mawr. So I thought, what am I going to do? I had to get on this sort of Goldman Sachs campus. And the reason I went to Goldman, you know, when you're an immigrant on a full scholarship and you have to get a visa, you don't have the luxury of defining yourself. And I, you know, I think it's great that we all, there's so much opportunity to the young these days because the world has changed, mm. but it just wasn't the case back then. So I knew I had to sort of pay back some of the loans and mm. I knew I had to stay in the country and a place like Goldman Sachs would take care of that. So pretty narrow-minded, but, you know, life is what the options are. Um, so I hustled my way through sort of finagling <clears throat> a few facts around which school I went to, and I got onto the roster of uh, interviewing at Haverford campus, which was a related campus, but not Goldman Sachs didn't come to Bryn Mawr. But anyway, I managed to find my way. I found an alumni. I sort of got through the scheduling, and I had my interviews, and... Uh, I was lucky enough to get a few options and Goldman Sachs was sort of iconic back. It was a private partnership back then. It was in 1995 and um, I, uh, I got my job there and suddenly I was legit. You were legit. Well, walk us through those years in Goldman. I mean, you know, we, we, we obviously have stereotypes about Goldman. Uh, we have perceptions about Goldman and I think it's generated not only entrepreneurs, but also investors. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit of what you learned there and, and what was that culture like? So since I know that we're going to be talking about that later. Yeah. So the um, uh, Goldman has and always will have an incredible reputation for a variety of reasons and people have their own impression of it. It's a very important institution. Uh, but in many ways, the the reputation that it had in 1995, this is a pre-IPO business. So this is a private partnership was even more iconic, it was even more deep-rooted. And you, from the day you walked in, you drank the Kool-Aid. Even, um, even if you knew that you didn't do things well, you had faults, you had a lot to learn, you were at Goldman, they made you feel like you were incredibly special. And that sort of empowerment, not in terms of responsibility, sadly, because I spent many all-nighters checking the font size on graphs, but I felt so happy that I had the chance to do that. At some point, I got sick of it. But they made you feel special, even if you did the sort of the most boring task in the world. And so people all walked around with this, I'm special, I'm a Goldman. And I, I'm not sure if it translated into arrogance. It probably did. But it was more around the culture was do anything and everything for the firm. And no matter at what point in the uh, night, so I don't think I slept for, I was there three years, I remember I fainted once. I had to sort of go to the sick room because I realized I hadn't slept for a couple of nights. Um, you always uh, had sort of a change of clothes because you never knew when you would have to stay on and uh, sleep the night. And you were on call all the time. And can you imagine? They didn't have we didn't have mobiles back then, and it wasn't really like a we don't have a, we don't have didn't have a device. You had pages. Well, we had to call. We didn't even have pages. You had to go back and check your voicemail to check if you had been staffed. So what motivation do you require where you're out at 10 o'clock at night and somebody has said to you, hey, check your voicemail, I might need you, that you actually check. 
in, of course, they've had to change it today completely because the millennials don't need that kind of, you know, uh, they don't need to be chased that much. They want more authority. They want more empowerment. They want more responsibility. They want less menial tasks. Things have been automated. We clearly were not treated like that. We yeah. had to check no matter when. And if someone called you in the middle of the night to tell you anything, you had to be fully alert and you had to be responsive. Why? Because you worked at Goldman. And if you wanted to be special, you wanted, you needed to be right there sort of standing up and, uh, uh, and sort of salute. And I remember this anecdote where a very, very senior partner, I mean, he's legendary, uh, and uh, he actually kind of created the concept of how IPOs work. So really legendary in the street. Uh, and for some reason, I happened to work directly with him with just one person in between. I think she was sick. He called me in the middle of the night and he said, I need to see you about this memo that you wrote. And it was a memo about uh, an IPO of a company called Associates, which was a big um, financial services firm. It was a spin out. And I remember sort of trembling in my shoes when I walked into his office. And very early the next morning, very, very early, of course, I hadn't slept at all. And he looked at me, he took the memo and he said, is this the way you write it? Associates does not have a capital A. You are an associate. The company, Associates, has a capital A. And he threw the memo at me and he says, no, scratch that. You're not even an associate. You're an analyst. You're nothing. And he threw the paper at me and I, I, and I, and I didn't cry because why would you do that? You're in Goldman. Um, and I walked out thinking there's something really wrong with this. I wasn't even really deeply upset. I just thought it was amazing that somebody could throw a piece of paper at me for getting a typo after working sort of night and day on a capital. I mean, I don't think we're going to tell our kids and our kids will never stand for something like this. So the world has changed completely. So that was the culture which you took anything and everything because you felt grateful to be at the farm. And uh, I'm not sure all the elements of our culture were good, but there was a sense of purpose and a sense of being special. And I can say something to you because my closest friends to this day were from that class that uh, we entered in together because it was such a bonding experience to this day. Yeah, but it sounds like part of the bonding came from the, the hardship but isn't that life it is but, but 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 would that imply therefore that companies that want to excel the way goldman has excelled need to create that level of hardship artificially i mean it sounds like that was a very very unfortunate circumstance that you went through but it was part of that story that you probably brought back to your peers yeah yeah and i and, I, and look i think that um it, it um it's a great question and i think i've thought i've thought about that and you have to understand that there was a very high turnover. We're talking about a very, very junior. We're talking about the bottom of the class. So I don't know whether the way they treated us, um, and you know, in many ways they treated us very well too. So in terms of uh, the, the empowerment side and in terms of making us feel special. But I think the hardship didn't extend all the way to the top. But yeah, it's, you know, it's Wall Street is defined because you have a very short shelf life. Mm. People have a very short shelf life. So the whole point is it's a high, it's high turnover, especially the lower ranks. And they're testing, do you have the metal to go compete? Do you have the metal to go compete in Wall Street uh, the way you need to, to in order to be a top firm? So I think it's very much a function of also the industry you work in where it's sort of dog, you know, you, you really have to eat your own dog food and it's incredibly catty. Um, I'm not sure that that translates. I think it, sh it tells you that hard work and having a mission statement and having a culture is important. And I think there are some tech companies that have that sort of culture and people have questioned over time. But I think, you know, technology is about creating legacies and it's about being incredibly 
self-sustaining because of the IP of the of the company and the people. It's not about high turnover, mm. and I think some of it translates and some of it hasn't. But it was a great learning experience. Mm. So let's revisit a little later the the culture element. I think it's an important one, and maybe we can pick some anecdotes from Excel uh, to to sort of highlight what you look for now. But if we jump over your MBA, I know that prior to getting your MBA, there was a, a startup that you went to visit, Spyglass. Yep. And that really was the, the spark that got you into what is now Venture and, and, and Atlas. So maybe you can walk us through that anecdote and then how you ended up at Atlas. Yeah, so, you know, life, uh, uh, life in Goldman Sachs was big fees and big fees mean big companies. That meant big steel companies and big uh, uh, cable companies. And generally, you were the smallest. You were the, you, your, your job was checking font sizes and carrying bags. And I thought, well, that's how life is. I didn't know anything better. You just you have to climb your way and it's the hierarchy. And that sort of, you know, I was lucky to be there, blah, blah. And then I got a call. I got a call. Uh, from the staffer who put you on to, who you typically avoided. But anyway, she found me and she said, I need you to go join this partner um, who is pitching this company. And I was like, okay, and I didn't hear about the company. It's just you and the partner that was already really interesting because normally there's sort of, I was the fifth person or the fourth person. And um, we ended up going to this company, a small company where the founder was wearing shorts, uh, the founder had a t-shirt and the founder was wearing open-toed Birkenstocks. There was like no fanfare. It was me and the partner, and we were talking about his browser, his browser company that had gone from zero to really, really substantial in no amount of time. And he was competing with Netscape that had gone public in 95, and that was sort of during the Microsoft Wars. And you suddenly had this company where the founder was the company. The numbers had grown from nothing to huge. I had never seen that. I had never seen PLs that move so fast. And there was no process, no hierarchy. And I thought, oh my God, there's an entire world out there of small companies where what I think matters and I can relate directly to the people who are making decisions as opposed to carrying bags. And I thought, I got to get myself into this business. So that was 1995. It was sort of pre many things. And um, and that sort of was my first taste of it. I did end up going to business school because in a world of paying off loans, you just want to make sure you have as much of a sort of stamped branded CV as possible if you were kind of an immigrant. And uh, I did that. But my entire time at Harvard, and now we're in bubble time, we're in 98 to 2000, everybody had a startup, everybody was doing something. And I just want to immerse myself into really trying to understand what made these companies grow from nothing to big. So I advised companies, I sort of got the, the bug. And for a variety of reasons, I got the bug in Europe. Because everybody was going to the Valley or Boston. Can you imagine Boston was the place to be, especially when you were at Harvard. And I got obsessed with the concept of what's happening in Europe. I mean, this is a huge market. You don't get the stories in Europe, and Europe was actually ground zero. It was just starting. And I found my way back to the hustle. I found my way into getting a job at, uh, at the point there was nobody. So Axel didn't exist in Europe. Uh, Index was in Geneva. Even Amadeus, I know I'm sounding like a blast from the past, was in Cambridge. There was nobody in London. So I couldn't get a job in London in venture because there was no one here. I got a job at a, at a bank doing venture capital because that's what they did in the bubble. Uh, but by the time I graduated from school, um, the guys at Atlas had decided to open up in London. They had Boston and they had London. And I basically wouldn't take no for an answer. And I banged on their door and I started uh, my uh, job as a venture capitalist knowing pretty much nothing about 10 days after I graduated and I haven't moved since then. I've been in London doing venture capital a few blocks away from my original office in Atlas since then. And it's been a huge journey 
And in that journey, how many years is that now? In terms it's very of, long, Carlos. Please don't date me. <laughs> Entrepreneurs might get biased. It's been uh, 17 years. 17 years. All right, well, we're catching up. We're catching up. Um, I think one of the things that the, the media is obsessed with at the moment is this idea that a good VC has to be a founder. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Fred Wilson, you look at yourself, and, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, the, you could argue that the hustle that you've shown throughout your life is entrepreneurial. But what, what's your view on, on that? You know, it's, uh, um, I think VC is the most humbling experience. Uh, it, it, at least it should be because you're always wrong even when you think something's going to be good you have no idea how good it's going to be so you're always wrong so you just get used to knowing pretty much nothing and I think the hallmark of a good VC is not having fixed views because the minute you have a fixed views you're dead because mm -hmm. imagine an entrepreneur comes and tells you how they're going to change something where there are 20 companies in the space but they're going to do it in their way and it could be that you think you know better and you can't know better. So I don't know the answer to your question about whether I don't have a strong view and it's not because I don't have views, it's because there's no data. So if you look at the data and there's a lot of people who've done the analysis on, you know, are you a better investor because you have been a founder, I think the, the data will be highly inconclusive. I do think that there is more, um, I wouldn't say empathy because empathy is who you are not what you've done. But I do think founders like to connect with people who've done it before. So from that perspective, I do think I've always been at a disadvantage uh, in some extent. But I, but I think that, uh, yeah, people show entrepreneurship and hustle and empathy because of who they are and what they've done. And it's not necessarily been about starting a company. Um, I think as you go forward in life, if you've had more experience, you are more nuanced and multidimensional. And part of that, you know, I advocate people go be a founder if you can. But sometimes being a good investor is not correlated with it. So, mm -hmm. no, that makes sense. But what you do get access to is a lot of experience in another area, which is managing relationships at the board level. And you've been in many influential boards. You know, here, especially here in Europe, you know, with Moo and Seatwave and and Wanga and, and several other companies that have had sort of highs and lows. Lyft, Spotify, and you know, having myself also been in boards. It, you, you're dealing constantly with uh, people not necessarily aligned around one specific goal. Yeah. Ironically, you would think so, but not necessarily. And also you have very different personalities, which were not necessarily hired by one person. Rather, they were a combination of either need in terms of capital, but other times in terms of who was appointed to be a board yeah. member. Walk us through kind of what, you, what your thinking is whenever you enter into a, a board and, and how you encourage founders to think about managing a board, how you, you encourage people who are entering into the VC world to think about how to gain and apply the best practices of board experience. Yeah, and um, it's a really deep question. It's a very substantive question because if you think about it, the board is the instrument to which you exercise judgment and guidance. Yeah, at least it should be. And I see all too often the younger entrepreneurs, they're much more comfortable having these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I can understand why, because they get more uh, feedback, but I'll tell you one-on-one -on -one conversations, the whole reason you don't, you don't get to have the productive, multi-dimensional conversation when you have five smart people who really care about the company versus one smart person. And uh, I, uh, it's really a lesson I have try to give, which is wean yourself out of that one-on-one -on -one kind of comfort relationship, try to bring it to the board. 
And uh, I think it ties in a lot with the culture of the company because the entrepreneurs who are who, who at some point get accustomed to bringing everything to the board are very comfortable with failure, are very comfortable with transparency, are very comfortable with giving the board members access to their company, which is you tells you a lot about the culture. But but back to your question about how do you how do you encourage um, how do you get the right tone? I think uh, it is very very difficult because by definition people have different agendas. You know, investing is not as simple as I want the best thing for the company and I leave. People have egos tied up into it. People come in at different cost prices. People feel like they had to compete for the deal, but they paid too much. People feel like, you know what, they got in cheap. So no matter how the company does, they can just coast. So you're dealing with these very different agendas and emotional reactions around the people at the board and also different levels of experiences. And uh, it means that sometimes the entrepreneur gets very mixed messages. Sometimes the entrepreneur feels like if he goes to you know board member A, he's going to get the stamp. And then he says, okay, I'll get board member A on my side. And then I'll just sort of push it through the rest of the board members. Or worse, I'll basically uh, not bring it up at all because I'll just sort of get it done on the side. So people have different ways of managing complicated boards. And, and, and I think you really need to uh, have board agendas that, that, that I have a few tips. One is put everything on the table. Be honest. Uh, try and have smaller boards because big boards kill you because that's the best way to not have any decisions. And uh, what I tell younger investors who are joining boards is listen as much as you can because it's not about airtime. It's not about having chip shots. Mm. You've been exposed to some of the best thinking, both West Coast and European Coast, of board advice. You know even things like uh, network effect businesses and monetization, you know, these ideas that we now take for granted. And yet, because you've been in Europe from, you know, the the onset of the the venture scene here, you've also been witness to board members who are accountancy based or revenue driven. How, how do you help founders to sort of shape that? Because there's still a mix here in Europe of board members that are looking at it from the point of view of monetize early and and sort of take the safe route versus some of the bigger ideas that you see in the U.S. where there's higher growth. Yeah. So I think we have a uh, we have a filter that sort of filters out Carlos some of those companies that uh, you could be more conservative and build a smaller business. I think by definition we are looking for big swings. We are looking for big hits. We are a hit. Venture capital is all about the outliers. So we encourage entrepreneurs to take measured risk. And um, I I think it's hard for us to be at the table and have dissonance on that because that's sort of something we test before we invest. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, I think part of it is just making people feel comfortable that even if you take that big hit, even if you delay monetization, can can you get funded in that time? So... It's the balance between, I understand your concern because we can't run out of money, but if the company is not doing what is ultimately needed to be a big company, it's not worth the, the game anyway. So, and I think it's breaking it down into milestones. So I spent a lot of time with my company saying, okay, don't just look to the like 10-year goal. Let's really break it down into two-year, 18-month milestones, and then let's work backwards. And that gives a lot of people a lot of comfort that the business plan is not all or nothing. That there's a measured way around, you know, uh, metrics, around burn, around hiring that'll get you to the next milestone around creating value that'll allow you to fundraise. Because yeah. the question is, how do you fundraise? 
But that's tri- that's tricky because on, on paper that makes sense, and, and a lot of founders now kind of take that approach. But where it gets tricky is you're at a crossroads. You have maybe three or four months worth of runway left. Yeah. You can either raise a, a small bridge, and you could reduce staff to like break even to like give that longer play. Yeah. Or would you go out fundraising and say, look, I have this data. It's early days. I have a big vision, but then large firms turn you down because. They don't see the numbers that that would be generated should you be able to raise a, a small bridge to get you that extra spend. Yeah. So it's like those weird moments. Yeah. And so the whole point is avoiding those moments. So you know when you've seen so many, we have a yeah. hundred companies as a firm. We back five hundred companies. Yeah. When you've seen this movie so many times, you can mm-hmm. see that that point months before. So I spend a lot of time sitting down saying, let's not get to the point where mm-hmm. your back is against the wall where you have basically, mm. you have to choose between really a devil mm. and a shitty rock. Mm. So you have to anticipate. I think part of being a sophisticated board member is seeing the potholes. Mm. And you don't help the entrepreneur, to, you don't take the steering wheel, mm. but you point out the pothole is coming. And at some point, if they don't want to take it, they want to drive right through it, there's nothing you can do. But does that, does that therefore imply that the only way that as an investor, you can avoid some of that is when the company's a little further along in its life because like the life at the early stage, you know, like from my point of view, when I deal with the company, it's always a series of unexpected things that even though you, you can almost see 500 different things going wrong at, yeah. the, at the super early stage. Yeah. Does that imply that, that therefore there's like a transition of relationship between like an investor early stage versus kind of where you guys invest? No, no, no. Look, I mean, 70% of what we do is Series A. I've been in this exact situation that you're talking about. I know you're talking about more seed to A, mm. but we do we do, we, we do 70% is first institutional capital, mm. but maybe institutional as an adventure, uh, you know, a bigger fund. So I have seen that the A to B journey is a very tricky journey because, you know, you pay up at the A because it's a great entrepreneur, big market, all of that. But at B, you better have earned mm. that valuation. So... I know what you're talking about is at a micro level, at a mm-hmm. seed to A, but I see it all the time from mm-hmm. my seed to B. I live it. So I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's an art. Mm-hmm. It's an art about making sure you're not conservative, mm-hmm. but you're being realistic because it's oxygen. Money mm-hmm. is oxygen. And if you run out at the wrong time, then you know no matter how big your vision is and how good the story is, you won't get there. And unfortunately, the reality is in Europe, it's not as much Series B as still. Still, I know that it is for the great companies, but actually there is not as much Series B. So you really have to plan your way methodically. But look, I mean, in certain situations, yeah, shit happens. Mm. A big, big customer falls through. Mm. And where what goes up comes down. And so we are there for a company. Our average holding is eight plus years. So we're there from the start and we're there at the end. And we embrace all of the ups and downs. And my God, we've seen a lot of ups and downs. And I want to just say one more thing, Carlos, that it's only when you really, really go down and God, we've gone down and I've been through some down experiences where you almost have to rebuild from the start. Um, And I think, you know, years later, I can say I had to do something similar at Wonga, which was a great, great business, great entrepreneurs, but went through some very, very difficult times. Does the quality of your board matter? I can tell you that in you know in that high profile situation we would not be where we are today which is profitable growing you know good business very very sort of good reputation and you know lots to do still we would not be there where we were if it was not for the quality of the board because at some point sometimes even founders um, and it's not just in that situation the baton is handed to the board mm. and that's when you really have to believe in the strength of the syndicate so uh, and your question is very important about how you get aligned around that. And that's all about thinking long term. Mm. 
So if we revisit the question about culture, yeah, how how is there any sort of transparency of the culture that a founder creates into the board, and how does how do you evaluate companies' cultures to see if if there is some of that? Yeah, I think we, uh, you know, I I I wish we could come up with like an interview the way we do with we have with security now we have mm-hmm. a cybersecurity interview or GDPR like data mm-hmm. privacy like we don't have an interview on culture you have to just smell it by being in the office but there are a few there are a few signs and if I back up I I think this has been probably my most humbling experience where. We've always thought culture is important and the way entrepreneurs hire. But of course, I mean, that's the stupidest thing to say because why would it not be? But it's only as, you know, I've gotten more gray hair in the business that I've realized while it is not sufficient, it is absolutely necessary. Great companies, enduring companies, resilient companies that can go weather these ups and downs really do have great cultures. And... Um, and we, we, we just don't have enough of a blueprint in terms of how to look for them. Can you pick some from your portfolio and maybe share some of the anecdotes? Yeah, that I mean, I think there out. are some signals. So, you know, we, uh, we, we released this set of papers around, uh, um, around culture in the Nordics because we had this observation. We were, looking at, we were looking at a company called ClickTech, which is a big data analytics business that went public in the US that we backed a long time ago. Swedish business, and we looked at uh, a Swedish business called Avito that created the second largest classified in the world, very profitable, very large business, uh, which was a great outcome. And then we looked at Spotify, where we're a, we're a lucky uh, small shareholder, and then uh, a company called Supercell, which of course everybody knows, where we were the first shareholder. And we started thinking, what is it about, you know, even companies like Just Eat or Klarna? I mean, there's a lot of businesses in the Nordics. It's been disproportionate. We said, what is it about those experiences? Because it's not just about the outcome because that really is the result. There was something else. We, the way we all talked about uh, our partners were on the board of those companies, the way we talked about enjoying working with the teams, the way we brought home anecdotes. Then we said, there's something here, let's dig. So we did this sort of investigative uh, uh, work where we spend time with the, with, the, with, the, with the teams and the CEOs and the entrepreneurs and sort of people in and around the business to really understand. And a few very, very compelling takeaways uh, sort of came out of it where if I have to, I'll give you a couple of quotes. Um, one is that the founder of ClickTech, uh, the CEO said, the smaller my seat as a CEO, i.e. the less power I have, the more comfortably I sit in it. I want to build a self-playing piano where literally the piano plays and I'm sitting at the side. And the way he implements that, which is he's basically, it's all about giving up control. It's all about having transparent dialogue and giving up control. And the whole set of cultures that allow you, that allow you to do this. But it, it, it means total transparency. So he said, people come into my office all the time and tell me I'm not doing a good job. And this is where I'm not doing a good job and I'm willing to accept that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's worked out very well with him in terms of the leadership team through IPOs, through private equity transactions. And, uh, and I thought, okay, that was, you know, sort of specific Swedish thing. And then we spent time with uh, the founder of Supercell who talked about how he created cells that's the way the, na- the name is supercell that were fully autonomous to the extent that major decisions around killing games even if they had spent months and years on a game actually came from the team and not from the top it was simple there was a blueprint which is if the game couldn't pass x amount of uh, you know um, daus or metrics in a certain amount of time they killed it no matter what and one of the most uh, sort of controversial decisions happened while the founder, Ilka, was not in the company. He was out somewhere. And one of the most important, highly invested games that they were working on got killed 
without the CEO. It ended up being, I think that that's the uh, that's the the team that came out with um, either Clash or, or, or Haiti. I can't remember, but the team themselves killed the game. That was their entire soul, spirit for months and months and months, and they killed it themselves. And they didn't feel like they needed to go to the CEO. So sort of really this self-playing piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we've seen it work in other companies where it's just a lot about accountability. It's a lot that. The CEO is not, it's not command and control. It's really about guidance and sharing the information. So these companies are very transparent. Uh, they bring or they bring a lot of the management team to board meetings. Mm-hmm. If you know, if we have a question in marketing or we have a question in finance, the entrepreneur will say, Hey, board member, please meet my 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 executive directly. Mm-hmm. There's none of this positioning and jockeying of you can't talk to the board member, you can. You can, there are some blueprints. When you go meet the company the second or the third time, is it just the CEO and the CFO in the room? Or do you get to meet everybody or do you have to ask for it? How much time do you spend sort of socially getting to know the other people before you make an investment? So there are a few signals, but we are so, um, I would say, reactive in really trying to understand culture. And I think there's some great lessons from the Nordics. Well. Thank you for that. It's a, it's a lot of a lot to reflect on, and, and um, I know that there's a lot of people right now who are researching the, the idea of culture and, and setting up the right culture. So we'll share some of those in the show notes. We always like to end with with um, sort of a out of the blue question. And what is the one idea that you did hold sort of strongly, but now that you look back on, you feel like you were misguided about? Um. Oh, there were so many. As I said, you know, you're always we, you're always being humbled. I think I used to think that. I think I really used to think that um, that the market, you know, there's this phrase, a sort of rising tides they float every boat, and the corollary of that is if the market's not good, you know, no matter how good the entrepreneur is, there's nothing you can do, and it's no longer true. I think if anything, after 17 years. It's tried to say it, but I've reaffirmed my belief that it is all about that person because the person creates outcomes. It creates market adjacencies. They create their own destiny in a way that is truly palpable. And so I've really let go of this notion that, yes, it's about the people, but it's also about the market and the market timing and, you know, the attraction and what all of that is sort of, I think, affirmative and confirmatory, but at the core, you got to look at the person across the table and say, is he or she going to break down doors and figure stuff up and do it in a sustainable way, where at the end, they're creating a great culture. And I think if I can answer yes to that, I move very fast. I mean, I will do my work. Uh, And of course, you know, the feedback of the market does matter, and I still make mistakes. But the importance of the person has never been more prominent for me after so long. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Anali. Absolutely. Thank you. Good questions. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.